Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And recently, tech news sites reported that Dell Computers was preparing to go public. Again. Because once upon a time, it was a publicly traded company, and then it changed back into a privately held corporation. And in July 2018, it announced it was getting ready to go public again by the end of the year. And this bit of news prompted me to record these episodes about Dell Computers, where the company came from, how its path has led up to going public for a second time, and all the trials and tribulations along the way. So today, we're going to start to explore the Dell story, And I could not resist using the dude, you got a Dell tagline. More on that in the second episode. But let's start at the very beginning. So on February 23rd, 1965, Michael Dell was born in Houston, Texas. His dad was an orthodontist and his mother was a stockbroker. And his parents wanted him to consider a job in medicine. But Michael would end up pursuing a very different career. And for one thing, Michael grew up just as personal computers were really becoming a big deal. Apple Computer was founded in 1976 when Michael was 11 years old. So that was something going on in the background while he was a kid. And meanwhile, he was learning a lot about business and finance, primarily from his mother. And he got to work Early on, he thought it was interesting, this idea of making money, and he turned out to be really, really good at it, even as a little kid. Uh, He became a dishwasher for a Chinese restaurant when he was just 12 years old, and he used the money he earned to support a hobby he had. He uh, had a hobby that had nothing to do with computers. It was um, being a philatelist. What the heck is a philatelist? It's a stamp collector. Technically, it's someone who studies stamps, but a lot of people use the terms interchangeably. Let's just call him a stamp collector. So he was collecting stamps, and he started having an exchange. He would do exchanges and sell stamps and buy other stamps, and eventually he was able to make $2,000, which is a huge amount of money for a little kid. And as a teenager, he spent summers selling subscriptions for the Houston Post. Uh, He ditched the standard procedure, which was making cold calls, you know, just essentially going down the phone book and trying to call people at random. Um, He decided that wasn't very effective, so he created a new marketing strategy, and it was really effective. He ended up making $18,000 in a year, so his first car that he bought was a BMW. He lives a different life than I do. He also bought an Apple II computer when he was 15, and he took it apart to see how it worked. He put it back together again. Uh, He would later buy an IBM PC and do the same to that. And he saw that IBM already had a big leg up when it came to computers in the business world. It was a very much an entrenched company. In 1983, upon the urging of his parents, Michael Dell enrolled in the University of Texas with the goal of being a pre-med student. So his whole thing was following what his parents had told him to do, go into pre-med. He hadn't really determined what he was exactly going to specialize in. This was his freshman year in college. And in the meantime, he kept turning his mind to entrepreneurial pursuits. 
he still had this love of business and, and ways of making money. And at first, he began to assemble and sell upgrade kits for personal computers. So this was not about building a new machine from scratch, but rather getting the components together that could turn a standard PC into a more powerful machine with more features. So stuff like more memory, uh, expansion cards, that kind of stuff, to turn your basic computer into a higher-performing machine. And he found out a lot of people wanted a personal computer, but many didn't want to spend the higher prices for a higher-performing machine from the major companies. And those were selling their machines to retailers, right? They were selling computers to retailers that then would mark up the machines even more. And so by the time your average consumer would go into a, a store to buy a computer, it would be very, very expensive, especially if you wanted something like an IBM computer. They were sell selling their computers at a premium of like 40% above cost. So none of the major companies were selling directly to consumers. And Michael Dell figured out, hey, what if I were able to do that? What if I were able to sell computers straight to customers and bypass all the retailers, cut out the middlemen? If I bought all the components myself and then built computers for people to their specifications, I could sell them for a much lower price and get make a healthy profit as long as I could buy the components at cost, if I could find a, a source for that. Now... Uh, he knew that this was going to be a, a potentially lucrative business. He also knew that a lot of people wanted a computer, but they weren't really confident in their ability to assemble a machine themselves. So they lacked the knowledge or the confidence to put together a computer. So this is where he could slip in. He wasn't quite ready to jump into that world just yet. So he continued his focus on upgrade kits to turn basic computers into high-performing machines. But he already knew where he wanted to go and to expand into assembling actual computers in the future. So while he was a freshman in college, he began to set up a business in which he would upgrade computers for other people, mostly friends and associates. But then word got out and he started to get other people asking him to do this sort of thing. He got advice and guidance from a guy named George Kosmetsky, who had co-founded Teledyne Incorporated and was then acting as dean of the University of Texas College of Business Administration. Dell would end up taking $1,000 out of his savings or from his family, depending upon the version of the story you come across, because I've seen both. And he used that to fund a new startup business, and he called it PCs Limited, and this started in January 1984. This is the date to which Dell traces its history, that PCs Limited was the company that would become Dell Computers uh, or Dell Technologies these days. Dell ended up uh, uh, upgrading those computers they knew for the people at the University of Texas. And then he differentiated himself from the various computer stores by emphasizing low prices and personal customer service. So if someone had a problem with something, they could call him and he would walk them through and fix the issue. Uh, soon, Word got around about this Dell guy and the computers that he could help build, and he started getting more orders and making more money. He began to hire a few employees to help with the work. He was actually getting more orders than he could fill personally. And soon he was making about $25,000 per month. At that rate, it seemed silly to stay in college and get a medical degree. He was already on his way to a very successful career. So Michael Dell dropped out of college to focus on his business at the age of 19. At the end of 1984, after just one year 
in business and focusing pretty much exclusively on selling and installing upgrade kits, not full computers, PCs Limited had made about $6 million in sales. $6 million in its first year as a college dropout. Not bad. According to the company's own timeline, the following year, 1985, PCs Limited would produce its first computer, building it completely from the ground up, but assembled from purchased components. So they weren't manufacturing the various parts of the computer. They were sourcing them from other uh, uh, manufacturers. So it was not an upgrade kit. It was an actual computer. And Dell was able to benefit from a few choices that IBM had made when it introduced its personal computer strategy back in 1981. I covered this in recent episodes, but I'll just give a quick overview. IBM chose to go with a non-proprietary approach with the personal computer, and that set its strategy apart from Apple computers, which was very much in the proprietary realm, right? So IBM used essentially standard off-the-shelf components to build its computer systems. And that meant that if you had the knowledge and the time and access to those components, you could build a machine that worked exactly the same way as an IBM machine. Essentially, you're you're using the same components or components of equivalent abilities to make a computer that processes information in exactly the same way as an IBM machine. Moreover, IBM had licensed a version of BASIC, the programming language, from Microsoft, but IBM did not get an exclusive license, which meant anyone could license that operating, or that programming language, I should say, not an operating system. So not only could you copy the hardware IBM was making by buying these components and then building your own machine, you could also run the same programming language, same version of the programming language basic on your machine, which meant that any software that was built to run on IBM computers would also run on the machine you built because it's essentially the same thing. Moreover, uh, Dell was able to get in touch with various IBM IBM inventory managers and buy components directly from them because IBM had this quota system for all of its components. And frequently, inventory managers found that their warehouses were getting filled with these different components that didn't have any place to go. They were just taking up space. So they could sell those to other Uh, entities, including Michael Dell. So he's buying the components for a very low price, much lower than you would if you went to a retail store, because the retail store is going to mark it up quite a bit in order to make its profit. He was able to buy them for a low cost and then combine them together to build these computers. And that was how he was able to sell computers that could run IBM software, but at a fraction of the price that it would cost you if you want to go out and buy an actual IBM computer. Uh, This was the era of the IBM clone. That's why we called it those things. Uh, So IBM was entrenched in the business world, as I said earlier, which meant that there was a ton of software already being made for IBM computers because you already had an enormous uh, potential customer base out there. If you wanted to make software for business, you wanted to do it for IBM computers because that was the majority of the type of computer that was out there in the business world. So by building a computer that could also run that, but at a fraction of the cost, Michael Dell was starting to get orders from everybody because everyone wanted to have a machine that could run IBM software, but not everyone wanted to spend the premium price you needed to get that sort of machine. And when I say everyone, I don't just mean 
home users, like people like myself, I mean companies like small businesses, medium-sized businesses, businesses that wanted to invest in computer systems, but not necessarily at the cost that it would require if they went all in with a company like IBM. This was suddenly a much more affordable option. So Michael Dell was getting crazy numbers of orders. The first full computer produced by Dell's company was called the Turbo PC, and it had an 8 megahertz Intel 8088 processor. It had a five and a quarter inch disk drive, and it had 10 whole megabytes of hard drive space. That's according to the Dell company timeline. However, I should say that I actually found examples of this computer. Uh, There's one that's listed under the National Museum of American History's website. They have the PC's limited turbo PC listed there. uh, And it has similar stats. It has the Intel 8088 processor, but it only has a hard drive of 360 kilobytes. That's far less than the 10 megabytes uh, suggested by Dell. So I don't know where that disconnect is unless Michael Dell was offering configurable computers, which is probably true. A lot of uh, Dell's money early on was made by upselling a customer. So you would offer to build a basic computer for a certain amount and then say, oh, you know, if you spend a little bit more, we can actually add this much more memory, this much more hard drive space, uh, another drive, maybe a printer, whatever it might be. Uh, because, again, he was able to sell these for much lower than you would find in in a retail establishment, he would often be able to upsell because people were, they wanted a computer with those abilities but not have to pay the full price. Uh, It also had 640 kilobytes of RAM. It had a local area network port, so you could actually network this with other computers with direct connections. There was no real internet connectivity at that point. It also had eight expansion slots, so you could put expansion cards in the machine. Uh, There are conflicting records of what exactly was the first computer, but you get two firsts in one episode this way, so that's a bonus, right? The price for the original Turbo PC computer was $795. Now, if you wanted to buy an IBM PC that had a similar configuration, similar features, you would be spending closer to $1,500 to $2,500. So it's no wonder the Dell computers were selling so well. Well, I have a lot more to say about the early days of Dell computers, but first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. I mentioned earlier that Michael Dell helped set his company apart through customer service. And one of the ways he did that was by offering up the option for customers to order a computer over the phone. He placed ads in computer magazines and was directly marketing to his customer base. So you would buy direct from Michael Dell. You wouldn't have to go again to a store for this. They could also choose customized components. So Dell's team would then assemble the computer based off the customer's preferences. And because Dell was buying components from manufacturers directly, he was able to sell those computers at a significant discount compared to other machines on the market. And he also established a policy for next day at home product assistance. And if you didn't like your computer, you could return it for a refund risk-free. The combination of his policies and the products helped propel Dell to greater success. In addition, Dell was operating his company almost like a boutique service. Rather than maintaining warehouses filled with unsold computers, Dell tried to keep just enough stock on hand to meet demand. 
that kept his inventory low and that meant it kept his expenses low because he didn't have to rent out a warehouse to hold massive amounts of inventory. Dell followed the Turbo PC with a clone of the IBM PC AT. The AT was IBM's second generation personal computer. It had an Intel 80286 microprocessor, the good old 286. The IBM version would set you back $4,000. Dell's version was priced at $1,995, which technically meant it was less than half of IBM's price tag. By the end of 1985, Dell had hit sales of nearly $40 million. So a big jump up from that $6 million that had made the first year. Now, granted, that's in sales, not in profit, right? You have to, to figure out profit, you have to subtract your expenses from your sales. And uh, because he was selling these at a fairly low margin, it wasn't like he was making huge amounts of money per sale. You know, but it still, it was good business. In 1986, Dell would release the fastest performing personal computer on the market at that time. It also featured a 286 microprocessor, but this one was clocked at 16 megahertz. And in the mid 80s, that was considered wicked fast. In fact, PC Magazine compared it to an F-18 jet, which might have been a touch hyperbolic in my opinion. But one sentence in the review said, quote, after a few hours at 16 megahertz, a lumbering IBM AT feels like a dusty relic from a computer museum, end quote. The review also said that the computer specs were so impressive that it might even go toe-to-toe with the upcoming next generation of computers, which would be running on the 8386 microprocessor. So that would be the next generation of Intel's processors, 286 to 386. Dell saw his company growing faster and faster, and he realized that he would need someone at the helm who was more experienced dealing with growing companies than he was. So he reached out to an investment banker named Edward Lee Walker to come on board as the company president and the chief operating officer. Now, Lee Walker had graduated from Texas A&M University in 1963 with a degree in physics, and he followed that up with postgraduate studies in nuclear physics. He actually received some grant funds from organizations like NASA and the National Science Foundation to pursue his postgraduate work. And he also got an MBA from Harvard in 1967. So this is a smart guy we're talking about. By 1986, Walker was 51, and he was a venture capitalist. He would invest in growing companies. And he agreed to come on board and began to mentor Michael Dell, teaching the young man how to create a workable business plan and how to manage a business that was experiencing rapid growth. Walker would remain president until 1990, and he would retire due to health reasons. And I never saw anything more specific than that, and frankly, it's none of my business. Lee Walker would go on to teach courses in business management at the University of Texas at Austin, and he's also heavily involved in charitable and community investment organizations. Uh, Pretty cool. Back to Dell. In 1987, uh, the last full year the company would be called PCs Limited, the company recruited a new marketing division from Tandy Corporation. Tandy had started out as a leather goods company in Fort Worth, Texas, way back in 1913. But then through a series of acquisitions and diversified holdings, the company would eventually enter into the world of electronics. It's not the only leather company to have done this, which is the interesting thing. But uh, Tandy produced the TRS-80 personal computer. Some people would call it the Trash-80 
computer, and it debuted in 1977. And so Tandy was one of the early computer companies out there that was competing in the the birth of the home computer market. Tandy, Apple, the Commodore, those were like the big computers that were competing in the early days. Tandy was also the company that owned the Radio Shack chain of stores, and eventually the company would rename itself the Radio Shack Corporation. But let's go back to those marketing executives from Tandy who came on over to PCs Limited. Uh, They came over and they immediately began to lay the groundwork to get Dell computers into more businesses, into more corporations. The marketing executives began to hire a large corporate sales force, and they began to establish resellers or retail establishment. Uh, relationships. So their efforts increased the profit margin for PCs Limited, but Michael didn't like what he was seeing. Michael Dell felt the department was trying to turn his company into the next IBM, and Dell felt that the marketing department did not understand his strategy of direct sales and marketing. So Michael also didn't care for the large advertising budget the team was requesting or how many salespeople they wanted to bring on, and so they clashed many times. And by early 1988, most of those Tandy executives had already either left the company of their own free will or had been fired. So it didn't last very long. The last computer marketed under the PC's limited name was a 386 IBM clone clocked at 16 megahertz with a megabyte of RAM and a 1.2 megabyte floppy drive plus a 40 megabyte hard drive. And it cost $4,799, a princely sum, no doubt, but still about $2,000 cheaper than similar computers from other companies. So while it was still, it was really expensive, it was less expensive than the competing machines that had comparable features. Toward the end of 1987, Dell opened its first international subsidiary in the UK, and it did not take long for the UK branch to start doing well. In one month in 1988, the office sold about $4 million worth of computers, so did pretty well. 1988 was a really big year for the company. Not only did most of those Tandy executives go bye-bye, that was the year that PCs Limited officially changed its name to the Dell Computer Corporation. The company opened its second subsidiary, this one in Canada, and Michael Dell's company transformed from a privately held corporation to a publicly traded one with an initial public offering. So Dell Computers had sold $159 million worth of computers in 1987, which helped propel its IPO to a success. The company sold about 3.5 million shares at $8.50 per share, and they raised around $30 million and ended up with a valuation of $85 million for the company. They did hit a bit of a stumble with its planned IBM clone for the PS-2 computer system. So the PS-2 was the third generation of IBM's personal computer hardware, and it was available in a range of options, including ones that took a more proprietary approach as opposed to using industry-standard architecture. Dell Computers announced it would offer a PS-2 compatible machine not long after IBM's system became available in 1987, but delays in design and production meant Dell did not have to, didn't have uh, that computer ready to go for several months. So there are lots and lots of delays. That actually was a pretty bad black eye for Dell early on. Uh, Dell would then end up luring away Glenn Henry, who had been a computer scientist over at IBM. Henry worked on product development for Dell and ended up tossing the design for the PS-2 clone and starting over entirely. He said, this is so far down the wrong path, we need to 
go back to the drawing board. He also helped establish Dell's R&D team, which eventually had 150 or so engineers in it under his guidance. Meanwhile, the market was becoming more crowded. Uh, Japanese companies were beginning to offer their own IBM clone computers for very low prices, and Dell faced some pretty tough competition in a space that it had been dominant in for several years. And when we come back, I'll talk about another problem Dell faced in the late 80s. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. When Dell Computers held its IPO, computer demand was super high. In fact, it was more than what the company could meet. And so in an effort to scale up operations and take advantage of demand, the company began to spend the cash it raised during the IPO to secure warehouse space and manufacturing capacity to actually build up inventory, something it had never really done before. But that strategy ended up coming back to haunt Dell because during the fourth quarter of 1988, demand for computers actually went on the decline. And that left Dell with full warehouses and little operating cash. They had spent all their money and their inventory wasn't moving anywhere. So it was the type of situation Michael Dell had worked really hard to avoid back when his company was much smaller and he tried to keep his inventory low. But obviously, when you get to a certain scale, it becomes much more difficult to operate in that way. Even so, with these events and these setbacks, the company was doing pretty well overall. By 1989, Glenn Henry was working on creating a a new Dell computers capable of producing high-quality images with special graphics cards and better-quality monitors, which helped the company aim at high-performing PCs. Uh, It was a market that was starting to take off. It wasn't just about processing power anymore. Now it was also about graphics and sound. Uh, Gamers were largely fueling this as well, not to mention people who are working in media. So Dell suddenly had a new market to aim for. They also introduced their first laptop computer in 1989. It was called the 316 LT, and this was a bit of a beast. Then again, all early laptops were pretty big and clunky. This one had a three and a half inch disk drive, which meant the whole case was pretty thick in order to fit the the drive and its uh, machinery. The laptop weighed 13 and a half pounds, but that was only without a battery. If you added a battery, that would add several more pounds to the device. It had a 386 processor clocked at 16 megahertz, and it came standard with one megabyte of RAM, upgradable to eight. They also had a built-in dial-up modem. The screen size was 9.5 inches on the diagonal with a resolution of 640 by 480 pixels. It was monochromatic, so no full-color display yet. And you could buy it for the princely sum, yet again, of $3,500. Portability can be yours for the low, low price of $3,500. And keep in mind, this is early 90s, so it'd be much more expensive today. The U.S. operations for Dell hit $257.8 million in sales. The U.K. division hit $40 million in sales. So sales were going very, very well. As the company scaled up, Michael Dell stressed the importance of keeping the focus on customer service and experience, which they were able to do for a few more years. But that would start to slip not too long from this point. Salespeople were supposed to take six weeks of training before they could even start taking calls, and they were trained also to help upsell options to customers. Like I mentioned before, that's where Dell made a lot of its money. So if you called into Dell to order a baseline computer, chances are the salesperson you talked to would bring up other options such as more memory or filling up those expansion cards uh, or slots with cards. 
Dell was known for a very quick turnaround as well. So that was a big selling point. Once a salesperson turned in a customer order to the manufacturing facility, that order would have to be filled within five days. So keep in mind, these computers are built to specification. It's You could order a base model and you would get it just as fast as you would if you decided to add some uh, bells and whistles to it. So it was a very different approach than what you would find if you just walked into a store and bought a computer off the shelf. Dell was also taking another stab at the corporate world. The company began to make servers for Anderson Consulting and other big clients. By the end of 1990, about 40% of Dell's sales came from corporate clients. And in total, sales equaled $546 million. And the company was shooting up the ranks among PC manufacturers. In 1989, it had ranked number 22 out of all computer companies. In 1990, one year later, it had shot up to number six. One of the first systems Dell produced for corporations was the Dell System TE series, such as the 425 TE and the 433 TE. These boasted the 486 processor, which was the newest model from Intel, and the higher-end 433 TE model sold for $12,199, which is a lot of money, but it was still less than half of what Compaq was charging for its similarly powerful 48633 server, which had a price tag of $30,000. So while it was an incredibly expensive machine that would be dwarfed by even a budget PC today, it was still very affordable compared to the competition. Dell also opened up a manufacturing center in Limerick, Ireland in 1990 to increase its production capacity, specifically in order to serve markets in Europe and Africa more readily. And despite the increase in sales and despite growing so rapidly, the company's actual profits were not quite as impressive. Dell had lower profit margins than some other manufacturing companies. And in 1990, Dell produced too many memory chips and was unable to sell as many as the company had projected. Plus, it had to cancel a big project that would have seen Dell produce workstations for companies. Those setbacks whittled the actual profit for Dell in 1990 down to $5 million. That's still pretty impressive, but when you view it against the more than $540 million in sales, questions have to be asked. If you sell $540 million worth of stuff, but at the end of the day, your take-home is only $5 million, people start asking questions like, where did all the rest of that money have to go to? How much are your operations costing? But in this, this particular year had a lot of hard things hit the company. 1990 was also when Lee Walker stepped down as president and COO of Dell Computers. Michael Dell reached out to another executive named Morton Meyerson to take over the, the company. Meyerson had previously led the company Electronic Data Systems, which was founded by former presidential hopeful Ross Perot back in 1962. Meyerson had led Electronic Data Systems from 1979 to 1987 and retired three years after General Motors had required, acquired rather EDS for $2.5 billion dollars. Meyerson came in originally to help Dell transition to the next phase. Uh, it had successfully held together during an explosive period of growth. Now the company needed to transition into a large corporation. Dell Computers was transforming in many ways around this time. While the company had begun as a direct sales computer company aiming at individual customers and corporations, now the emphasis was really shifting to those larger clients like big companies and government agencies. 
And starting in 1990, Dell began to explore options by dealing with resellers, those retail establishments, specifically ones like Soft Warehouse Superstores, which later changed its name to Comp USA. Walmart was another one, Sam's Club, Staples. And I'm sure you all know this, but the way that reselling works is you have a merchant or a company, they end up buying computers from a manufacturer at a certain price, they agree upon the price, So the reseller ends up buying those machines. The reseller then sells those machines to customers, uh, typically at a markup. You could sell them for at cost, but then you're not making any profit. And unless you're doing it in a way to try and convince the customer to buy other stuff that is marked up for a profit, it doesn't make good business sense. So uh, the problem was, however, it would eventually prompt the com- the company to reconsider its relationship with these retailers in 1993 because profit margins were getting really thin for Dell. And part of that was because of this, this strategy to use resellers. But we'll get to that bit in our next episode. Around this time in the early 1990s, the PC market was in trouble for the most part. There was an economic recession going on in the world, and consumers had less money to spend on expensive computers. So some of the big names, like Apple and IBM, uh, were having their own crises brought about by various questionable decisions. But Dell Computers was actually coming out ahead because the company had been focused on comparably powerful computers at a much lower price than competitors would offer. So people still needed computers, they just couldn't shell out the big bucks for the the brands like Compaq or Apple or IBM. So Dell continued to do pretty well during that recession, at least at first. In 1992, Fortune magazine would name Dell Computers among the Fortune 500 list. That list ranks the 500 largest U.S. corporations according to total revenue for the most recent fiscal year for those companies. Dell appeared on it for the first time in 1992, and that made Michael Dell the youngest CEO of a Fortune 500 company. He was 27 years old at that time. But things were not necessarily going to go smoothly for Dell and his company in the near future. That, my friends, is what we call a cliffhanger. You'll have to join me for the next episode to find out what happened to Dell. Or, you know, read an article or something. But no, tune into my episode. And if you guys have suggestions for topics I should tackle in future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a company, a technology, a personality in tech, maybe there's someone I should interview or have on as a guest host, send me a message. The email for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 